Good evening and welcome everyone to this LSE Economics Department public lecture. We're fortunate and delighted to have Michael Kumoff, about whom I will say more in a minute. But Michael is, as you know, here to deliver his lecture on the Chicago Plan Revisited. This is a proposal for reform that would eliminate the banking system's ability to create additional money. Just even that description, you know that this provides a radical alternative, not just to our current system of banking, obviously, but to a range of Basel III related reforms currently being discussed out there in the wider world. So just a couple of words, this plan seeks to eliminate the risks associated with fractional reserve banking. Under this proposal, banking would operate with 100% required reserves. Now, it's the assertion of the plan's proponents that such a regime would bring about dramatic improvements in economic growth and welfare. Those of us who might step back a little bit from the details that surround this plan and this calculation, you will also appreciate that what this means it's in one fell swoop for many countries switching from a system where we have national debt to one with national surplus. In terms of a domestic political economy, this restores absolute control to the central bank. And those who think even more broadly about this issue suggest that such a plan could even change the nature of modern capitalism. For those of us who live and work here in the city of London, we also have some appreciation for how this might reduce the power of the banking community, the private banking community generally. My name is Danny Kwa. I'm Professor of Economics and International Development here at LSE, and it's my great pleasure to get to chair this evening's lecture. At LSE, as many of you will know, if you are regulars at these public lectures, we encourage you to tweet about the event, even as the event unfolds. But it would be great if when you do that and you have your phones on, to keep your phones on silent. The hashtag is hash LSE Kumov that many of you will have seen already. Just a word about the order of business, the speaker Michael Kumoff will speak for about 40 minutes. After that, my expectation is there will be a lively question and answer session that engages both you, the audience, and the speaker. Now, if I can just spend a minute turning to our speaker. Michael is Deputy Division Chief of the Modeling Division at the IMF Research Department. And in that day job, he engages in the care and feeding of IMF's dynamic stochastic general equilibrium model for multilateral and bilateral developments. Michael is also affiliated with INET, the Institute for New Economic Thinking, where a lot of his work and focus there have been on investigating income inequality as a driver for macroeconomic dynamics and thus as a cause for economic imbalance and crisis. Um, just any casual conversation with Michael will convince you that he is a deep thinker, he's widely knowledgeable about a range of materials, not just technical economics, but history, philosophy, a deep Germanic understanding of what it means to be a social scientist. 
So if you could join me in welcoming Michael to the lectern. Thank you, Danny, for those very kind words. I like the Germanic part. <laughs> so um, this is joint work with uh, Jeremy Bennis, a colleague at the International Monetary Fund. And as I always have to do uh, with these kinds of presentations, I have to put up the disclaimer. It's particularly relevant here because this paper does not in any way represent an official policy position of the International Monetary Fund. It is research. Okay? But we like to have debate, and this certainly has, has caused uh, debate. So um, let me introduce this on just one, in one, just one slide. Uh, we are currently in a situation where there's a lot of attention to the financial system and its problems, uh, more so than at any time uh, since, the, uh, since the Great Depression. But in the Great Depression, there was a similar level of attention to uh, problems in the financial system. And uh, a very large share of the then leading macroeconomists put forward a plan uh, that became known as the Chicago Plan because many of its, its advocates sat at the um, University of Chicago. And uh, it was all about how do we make the financial system safer uh, given what we've learned during the crisis. Now, when you read the debates that happened during those times and, and, and the papers that were written during those times, what struck me, what is really amazing, is that the level of understanding, the depth of understanding of what banking really is, was literally far greater than it is today. I'm not joking. Okay? Um, today we, we are very much involved in very technical debates about how do we fine-tune the financial supervision with Basel, etc., uh, keeping our existing system intact but making sure it works better. What those guys did in the 1930s was to think about how do we design a system from the ground up where we would not have many of the problems that we have in the first place. What would, ha what would such a system have to look like? And it was based on an understanding of what banking actually is. And I will argue today that a lot of theorizing that goes on about what banking is today is plain wrong. And I will explain what I mean by that. Okay, uh, I'm listing here the major names that did support the Chicago plan. Uh, Frank Knight, Henry Simons, Irving Fisher was a very fervent advocate. It actually came from Frederick Soddy, who was uh, the 1921 Nobel Prize winner in chemistry here in the, uh, based here in the UK, who first uh, came up with this plan. Milton Friedman uh, also advocated it um, at one point. And what the Chicago plan proposes is the separation of the monetary and credit functions of banking, which right now are joined at the hip. You cannot separate them. Namely, it requires that uh, deposits or money, and those are terms that I will treat interchangeably, uh, must be backed 100% by public reserves. And secondly, that credit cannot be financed by creation of bank deposits ex nihilo, out of thin air, which is exactly how... Uh, credit is, is uh, funded today, and the explanation will follow. So here is, um, is on one slide, uh, many of the essentials about uh, what is required to understand banks. The key function of banks today is money creation. It is not intermediation, period. Right? Mm -hmm. Banks do not intermediate pre-existing savings. 
Banks do not wait for granny to walk in through the door and deposit some money so that they can lend it to somebody else. Zero percent of banks' business is of that nature. Instead, what banks do is they create new money, ex nihilo, out of thin air, in the act of lending. And I emphasize that this is not a theory, this is a fact. Right? And for example, that means I, have, I do not have to provide empirical evidence for this to test a theory. This is a fact. Um, and in, in my work, uh, I'm listing many, many uh, uh, quotes from central bank publications that say so. You just have to look in the right place. So what that means is that banks can very easily start a lending boom by simply growing both sides of their balance sheet. They fund a loan by creating new money, and they can do that turning on a dime. Today, they could grow their balance sheet if they really wanted to by 50%. Of course, they don't want to because that's a very risky thing to them. But they might decide to grow it by 5% in a quarter because they think you know, business prospects are much more rosy. Um, and they're, they're, the only constraint that banks face when they do that is precisely their own expectations of how profitable the loan will be and whether it might uh, endanger their, their, their solvency. Okay? And the, but the sentiment of... Yeah, I, I worked for Barclays for five years making loans. Hmm. And that sentiment can turn from one week to the next. Or I might be exaggerating a little bit, but that sentiment can turn very, very quickly. And that makes this dangerous. Uh, there is no other constraint on this. You, uh, reserves at the central bank, cash balances, do not impose a constraint. I will explain why that, why that is the case. But now I want to show you um, a little illustration. This thing also points, right? No, I, I might not need that. Um, <coughs> it's this pen. Ah, good. So what I'm, what I'm showing you here is a story of how economists today, the ones who are working on banking, are conceptualizing the activity of banks. The activity of banks is intermediation of savings in those models. So we have a bank that starts with a balance sheet that has some previous loans, some previous deposits. Along comes a saver. And in those models, what happens is literally those, that saver deposits goods at the bank. Not money. It actually doesn't make sense for him to deposit a, 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 a check because a check is just money that already exists. It's just drawn on another bank. So that just shuffles money around the system. It doesn't create any new money. Right? Um, so I'm, to make a bit, of fun, a bit of fun of these models, see, I'm mm. saying he drives up with a truck and deposits gravel. Mm. Right? Now, you have to uh, keep track of how this is then entered in the books by double-entry bookkeeping. And unlike many economists, I don't, uh, I don't look down on bookkeeping. Bookkeeping is really important if you want to understand banks. So what does the bank record when this guy has driven up? On the asset side, a pile of gravel. I've never seen a pile of gravel on a bank balance sheet, but that's literally what this model says. But what happens next is then, the next step here, the deposit is now recorded, and now somebody else comes and wants a loan, and the bank gives him the gravel, and this guy issues an IOU, which is the loan contract. You have to repay me later on. Okay? This guy never wanted gravel. He wanted a machine, so he now has to conduct a barter transaction where he swaps the gravel against the machine. Mm. Okay? So we have now modeled 
institutions that provide nearly 100% of the monetary medium of exchange of the economy as institutions of barter. Okay? Um, and what happens in the end here, saving is that it's, in this whole transaction, saving here literally has been a prerequisite of lending and of investment. And what I will show you on the next slide is that in the real world, the exact opposite is true. Okay? So, this is the correct view. We start with the same bank balance sheet. Now, an investor comes to the bank and says, I want a loan. And I look at the business plan and I decide, okay, you're good for it. It's a good business plan. I think you will succeed. I give him a loan. What do I do? I record an asset, the loan, uh, of money, not of gravel. And then I make a deposit account available to him of, let's say, a million dollar a deposit account available to him, to the same guy. And he then takes that money and uses it for whatever he came to the bank for. Meaning that what, what's on the asset side and on the liability side is the same guy. There is no intermediation. Banks, in this sense, in the sense of intermediating savings, are not intermediaries. They are creators of the economy's medium of exchange. And then what happens in the next step is that this depositor takes his money and go, gets into a non-barter transaction with investor B. He gets into a monetary transaction. He pays him for the machine using money, using a check drawn in his account, and then investor B ends up being the depositor of the bank. Now, it's important to realize that, depositor, uh, that, that, that investor B never intended to become a saver here. He only intended to sell machines. But by engaging in this transaction and ending up with a bank deposit that the bank created out of thin air, he becomes a saver. All right? And so what happens at the end of the day is that saving is a consequence of lending and of investment. It is not a prerequisite. All right? And in the, the final balance sheet looks the same. There's a different guy on the asset side, on the liability side, exposed. But what matters is how has this money been created? And if the money is created this way, the bank faces no limit because we're talking about accounting entries on the asset and the liability side. And the only limit is uh, whether this, this loan will be profitable and whether it's, or, or whether it might endanger the solvency of the bank. And then, of course, the bank won't do it. But if it thinks that it's a good proposition, it will. Okay? So in here, uh, one last slide, it very schematically... The, the, the loanable funds theory is just basically it starts on the deposit side and goes to an investor and it's all goods and in the end we do barter. And the, the, other, the correct view is that there is one investor interacting with the bank, the bank creates money for him and there is monetary exchange, not barter. This is how banking really works. And loanable funds theory, if you read the leading academic papers in the literature today, it's all about that. It's all loanable funds theory. There is something wrong with that. Okay? Um, another thing that we need to get out of the way before I can come to the Chicago plan is the deposit multiplier. Okay? You will read that in our undergraduate textbooks, and it's amazing that it's still there. Uh, there is a central bank that fixes a narrow monetary aggregate, and then the banks lend that, but they have to keep part of it as reserve in the central bank, and there's, this goes round and round, and, and the banks create a much broader monetary aggregate. Now, Kittle and Prescott, Nobel Prize winners, referred to this as a myth. 
And they said basically that it turns the actual monetary transmission mechanism completely on its head. And I think that's, that's absolutely right. It was right during the era that they investigated, which was the monetarist era, where the central bank ostensibly actually targeted monetary aggregates. But they found that in a time series sense, broad monetary aggregates lead the cycle, narrow monetary aggregates lag the cycle. Broad monetary aggregates is what banks decide to create. That comes first, then comes the cycle, and then they go to the central bank to get reserves. In today's era, where, where everybody does inflation targeting, it's mechanically almost obvious that it has to be like that because if you control the price, which in this case is the interest rate, the policy rate, you have to let the quantity adjust. And the quantity is the quantity of reserves uh, in, in the system. Okay? And so what that means is... Um, is, is that what comes first is loans, then comes deposit, and reserves is an afterthought. And all, both of these things, this slide and also this here, I have mountains of citations from central banks and from leading economists up to about the late 1950s. And then the whole debate goes silent. And I'm trying to resurrect it. Okay, so the conclusion, the transmission starts with loan creation that leads to deposit creation and ends with reserve creation. This is a quote from Alan Holmes, vice president of the New York Federal Reserve in 1969. In the real world, banks extend credit, creating deposits in the process and look for the reserves later. This is exactly the other way around from the textbook process. What that means is that banks are almost fully in control of the money creation process, the policy rate, of course, can affect money creation to some extent, but it's limited because the policy rate would have to literally make banks think that their borrowers are nearly bankrupt in order to not lend to them. Okay? Um, the Chicago plan, and now we're starting to get there, uh, would remove this control. Banks would now become true intermediaries, the way, but not quite the way we saw it earlier, because that intermediation model was intermediation of goods. Under the Chicago plan, banks would become intermediaries of sovereign money, which the only sovereign money that we have today is actually coins. I'll get to that. Uh, um, And uh, money creation would no longer, and this is also important to understand the significance of the Chicago plan, money creation would no longer be based on private debt creation. Right now, today, we have a world where if everybody repaid their debts, this economy would grind to a halt because without debt, we don't have money. Because it's simply an others, the other side of the balance sheet. Okay? So I am arguing, and I was at Warwick earlier today and gave a talk there, so we had a big debate about this. I am arguing that one major reason why we have so much debt in the economy today is because we have a monetary system that requires us to have debt so that we can have money. Of course, that's not the only thing. People are different. Some people have hit bad luck and they need to borrow from others who who haven't. That's also there. But if you do the following thought experiment, you will realize that that I must be right, at least to some extent. Do a thought experiment where you have an economy that starts out and it has no deposits. And cash is just so insignificant today. Let's ignore cash also. You know, economists. That's typical. One of those economists... Games where you, you construct this, this artificial world. There's no cash, and so we need deposits in order to do transactions. This economy would be screaming for money. 
And therefore, people would be willing to hold bank deposits even for negative interest rates, as so as long as they could have a medium of exchange. If you then had competitive banks, they would pass this cost advantage on to their borrowers. They would subsidize them to borrow. So, you know, people always intuitively object to this whole idea by saying, well, but if I walk into a bank, I don't walk into a bank in order to give the economy a sufficient money supply. No, that's of course true. But would I really be walking into a bank uh, if, if, if this wasn't the case? I mean, basically, I, if, if there was no sufficient quantity of money in the economy, the prices in the economy would change in such a way that something would make me walk into a bank because the bank would basically be able to subsidize me to take a loan because there would be so much demand for bank deposits just so that the me- economy can have a medium of exchange. So the bottom line of that argument is that is one of the reasons why we have so much debt in the economy today. It's not the only one. I've never argued that. Okay. Um, so now let's get to the Chicago plan. Um, Okay, so we have to start with debt. This would lead to a dramatic reduction in public and private debts. Um, We start here, this is for the year 2006 US banking system, commercial plus shadow banks. Uh, This is put together from the US flow of funds and all these numbers are percent of GDP. So I'm having the banking system hold 20% of GDP worth of government bonds, 80% of investment loans, and 100% of GDP of mortgages against land, of consumer credit, and of working capital loans for firms. On the liability side, I have deposits, and I mean that to be a very broad category uh, that includes everything from very liquid uh, liabilities of the banks to much less liquid, but still, you know, even very long-term deposits, they still, the banks still have to pay a little bit less than that than than, than what they otherwise would have to pay because these have monetary characteristics. They have some liquidity characteristics and the bank can therefore pay a lower interest rate on that. And so I basically then say, let's have this deposit uh, represent the totality of that and assign an interest rate that represents that totality, meaning an interest rate in the U.S. case that's one percentage point lower than the rate on government uh, bonds. Okay? Then bank equity, there's, there's a sophisticated state-of-the-art DSG model behind this where we model Basel III, where banks keep 8% minimum capital adequacy and another 2.5% buffer, etc. There's no time to go into the nitty-gritty of that. And then the Chicago plan, if it is implemented from one day to the next, this is what that would look like. Uh, the, the, the government now tells the banks, look guys, you have all these deposits sitting there, you need to back them 100% with reserves of public money. Okay, you can think of that, just so made to make it visually easy, you can think of that as literally banknotes sitting in the vault of the bank. They would all be freshly printed up here because they don't exist. This is 184% of GDP. Of course, in the real world, this would be electronic. But think of it as banknotes. It makes it easier to, 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 to get the logic. Now, of course, the banks don't get that for free. Right? They, they, they basically borrow it uh, and uh, issue an IOU to the Treasury so that the Treasury prints this up for them. This would be the very first step of the Chicago plan. And then the next step is, let's just rearrange things. Nothing has changed here, just the uh, way in which I, order, which I arranged all these different blocks. I now have a bank here that uh, has deposits uh, representing uh, reserves of public money. 
So you could think you could think of this as a private institution. You could even think of this as uh, directly holding bank accounts in the central bank. You know that it wouldn't be any different. Although you know, I prefer to put it forward as something that is still managed by private institutions that manage ATMs and the SWIFT system and all that, and charge maybe a small fee for that. But it's a completely riskless business, <clears throat> unless unless a fire burns up the banknotes or something like that. Uh, the rest of the banking system is credit investment trusts, where literally the whole bank, uh, balance sheet is the same as before, except that treasury credit has now replaced what, what was previously deposits. Okay? So the government has here basically in one step recovered the seigniorage that the banks had previously appropriated themselves by creating money privately. And this is a windfall that the government can then decide how to dispose of and the next steps are about that. And I'm assuming that in the first step, they're going to, out of that, repay government debt as it falls due. Mm. Most of it is not held on the, in the private banking system in the U.S. case. Most of it is held abroad or by non-banks. And credit investment trust would become a little smaller. Next step, this thing can be thought of as a huge bank account by the government in the credit investment trust. The government could now come along and say, I'm sharing this with my citizens. I'm giving every citizen an equal per capita uh, investment account in this huge credit investment trust. This is a citizen's dividend. And then I'm, I, I can, but I don't need to. In this case, I'm saying, I, I, I'm saying uh, I, I impose an additional condition, which is that when you get these accounts, which you should be happy with, you, you only get that if you first apply it to repaying any private debts that you have outstanding. Okay? So then what will happen is I'm, I'm, having, you know, I'm making it convenient here so that it exactly cancels everything except investment notes. Of course, the way you do this exactly, that, that's up, up for grabs. You know, that's a choice. I just did it in one particular way. And then the investment trust looked like this. Uh, so only investment trusts now funded by treasury credit and bank equity. Two more steps. First of all, here, bank, this bank equity, according to the Basel rules, is now far more than the bank needs uh, because it has, less, it has fewer assets, so it pays out some. And the final step, you know, people look at this and they get nervous and jump up and down, the sort of the free market types, ooh, this, the government is completely funding the credit business. That can't be a good thing. Well, what I'm saying with the next step is that that, that is totally not necessary. So, for example, if the government decided to spend some of that uh, to retire the government debt that is held outside the banking system, you would end up uh, with, with something like this, where these guys were funded by, by their own equity, by deposits by the private sector, and a little slice of treasury credit remaining. It's important that these deposits are risky investments. They are not money. This is now a risky investment. No FDIC coverage, etc. When you put your money into an investment trust, uh, then this would be a risky investment. Okay, so that is the balance sheet mechanics of the Chicago plan as far as the private banking system is concerned. Here is what, uh, what's happening with the government. I'm having government debt of 80% of GDP, uh, some other net assets. I just wanted the original balance sheet to balance. Then I'm adding to this the, the two steps. The first step is that you, uh, you, you issue uh, the additional reserves and this is the balance sheet after all the other additional steps have been completed. And here is, a, no, I normally do a little visual uh, thing, is this 
This uh, treasury credit here is, of course, a claim of the, of the uh, government on the private sector. What is the nature of these reserves? Let's think about first, what is the nature of this money? This is a US $20 note. This is still debt-based money, because on the other side of the Federal Reserve sits government debt. Right? So it's in the Federal Reserve balance sheet rather than private banking balance sheet, but it is still debt-based money. There is, however, another kind of money in the United States. This is a quarter, and this is not debt-based money. This is issued uh, and treated as a pure revenue. It is essentially treated as equity in the commonwealth of the nation when it is issued. And what the Chicago plan amounts to is to say that all money in existence should be of this nature, where right now it's such a minute fraction you can't even see it if you put it in a chart. Okay? Um, so, that it, and, and that, that means that the government's balance sheet has, of course, dramatically improved here. Uh, and also the net debt, after all the other steps have been completed, the equity has uh, uh, fallen a little bit because when the government distributes a citizen's dividend, that's exactly, that's a charge against equity. But it, the government still ends up with a net positive position vis-a-vis -vis the private sector. So you have here a situation if you carry this through, where you have where, where government debt would be zero or negative even, and where private sector debt has dramatically declined, because essentially what you have done, because this money is equity, is you have done a huge economy-wide debt-to-equity swap. And that has uh, many other implications that I'll come to in a second. Uh, how much more time do I have? 20 minutes. Oh, good. Very good. Yeah, yeah. yeah that'll be fine. So the third advantage of the Chicago plan, now that we understand what's going on with the balance sheets, is a complete elimination of bank runs. That one should be obvious, right? I mean, if I know that my, my, bank, my money in the bank is in the vault, and I no longer want to hold it electronically, I want to hold it in cash, but I know the cash is there, I'm not going to be worried. I'm never going to run on this bank unless I have a bit, bit of a problem. Here. Okay? Um, now, this money is completely safe because it no longer depends on anything that's happen happening in the private credit system. It's just the medium of exchange of the economy. And that means that this lifeblood of a modern economy is no longer affected by troubles in the credit system. And, you know, I find it instructive to think about, you know, the bail-ins that are all over the news now as being mooted as a, as a possibility. Compare this to a bail-in. I, I, I personally think that people like Irving Fisher would have been horrified by the idea of a bail-in because what you do is, again, this is my personal opinion, nothing to do with the IMF. Okay? <laughs> uh, the, the, uh, if, if you did that, you would basically, there is a possibility that you might destroy private bank deposits. By, by, by making the depositors participate in the rescue of the financial institutions. You are basically, therefore, destroying part of the money supply of the economy, which is the lifeblood of your economy, of any modern advanced economy. Under a Chicago plan world, you resolve the problems in the credit system and the, 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 means of ex, uh, the medium of exchange continues parallel to that without any problems. Just think about how much easier that would be. Um, 
Next advantage is large output gains approaching 10%. Now, don't take the 10% too seriously. That's just, that comes out of our calibration, but we spend a lot of time on the calibration. Um, there are three reasons. First, lower interest rates. Why is that? Well, if you do an economy-wide debt-to-equity swap, any good economic model will tell you that uh, the risk premium depends on your debt-to-net-worth ratio. And here, the debt-to-net-worth ratio throughout the economy, especially the government, but not only, goes down a lot. So lower interest rates, lower premium. Uh, therefore, uh, more investment, more capital, more output. Secondly, lower uh, tax rates. So you can lower distortionary taxes on labor, capital, whatever, because there is seniorage revenue here. But when you hear seniorage, you often think inflation. I'm not saying inflation. I'm actually saying in this economy, you could have zero inflation very easily. And if, but, but if you issue a money stock that's 180% of GDP and your real economy grows at 2% per annum, and the money stock that is needed is roughly proportional to the level of real economic activity, you can make 3.5% of seniorage revenue every year, 3.5% of GDP, without any inflation, zero inflation. And if you apply that towards lowering distortionary taxes, you're looking at a real benefit. Third, uh, monitoring costs. Right now, we have a lot of smart, economy, uh, smart uh, people sitting out there in the economy and banks monitoring credit risks. Okay? And that will always be necessary, but not to the extent that it is today if you were in a Chicago plan world, because the systemic reason that I mentioned to you earlier for having so much debt in the economy, namely that we need it in order to have an adequate money supply, would no longer be there. And so you could redeploy at least some of these really smart people uh, to become not financial engineers, but mechanical engineers or electrical engineers or something like that. Okay? Um, and the more, it, it, I mean, this is not just something I'm saying, this is also calibrated in the model. There are monitoring costs in the model, and we try to sort of get the numbers right and how much of a, a beneficial effect on GDP that would have. Um, here are some simulations over 60 quarters or 15 years, basically saying start with, a, with an economy uh, as it is today over here, right, at zero, uh, and then uh, <coughs> assume that uh, at, at, at time zero, the Chicago plan is imposed all at once, and let the economy find its new steady state while keeping all these structural parameters of the economy unchanged, meaning everything that defines people's behavior in the economy is assumed to be the same. All I'm doing is I'm changing the monetary system. Okay, and what happens is that the wholesale lending rate uh, declines here, which is the, the, the riskless lending rate, by over two percentage points, the labor tax rate by five percent percentage points, etc. These are calibrated values, and we can argue about the details. Okay, but the big picture is lower interest rate, lower tax rates. This stimulates investment. This stimulates output. The stimulus to investment in this particular simulation is so large that it actually crowds out some private consumption for a little while, mm. but not forever. Um, and by the way, the red line just means where do I go in the very, very long run. Okay? So this is, this is highly beneficial. Uh, here are the fiscal simulations. The only thing that you need to take away from that is the senior ash revenue of 3.5% of GDP that I mentioned to you earlier is applied to lowering labor and capital and consumption taxes, and that is what accounts for part of the output gains. Number five, no liquidity traps. I will only, liquidity traps, 
obviously a big problem I mean, right after the, after the financial crisis that there has been a lot of debate about that. And what are liquidity traps? Well, the, the central bank loses its ability to stimulate the economy either by lowering interest rates or by pumping money into the system. Okay? I'm only going to talk about the pumping money part because with the interest rate it would take too much time to explain how this works. But basically, under fractional reserve banking, the central bank only controls this very narrow sliver of money called, res- called reserves. And when it creates more of that and just gives it to the banks, then it depends on the banks to lend more to actually create broad money. Okay? This is the whole problem of pushing on a string with monetary policy when you're in a liquidity trap. Under the Chicago plan, the central bank directly controls broad money. It is pushing on a steel rod. It can, te- it can determine exactly by how much the broad money supply, the medium of exchange, increases. So that removes the liquidity trap altogether. Um, finally, much better control of bank lending-driven business cycles. Under fractional reserve banking like what we have today, this privilege of banks to create money, ex nihilo, is, I'm arguing, a major source of credit cycles. Why is that? Well, uh, if I can create my own funds, I only need to interact with the borrower uh, at the moment I make a loan. And if I feel good about the borrower, then, and then, then I just go ahead. Uh, there isn't actually, you know, it, it, there's still discipline from the depositors, but not very much. And it's more on individual institutions and not system-wide. And in addition, because these funds that I create as the banks are the medium of exchange of the economy, which means that the government has a big interest in making sure that this medium of exchange is perceived as safe and therefore to guarantee it either explicitly or implicitly, which is exactly what it has done, right? Um, it's not just about making the banks survive. It's about making them survive because they're providing this absolutely vital medium of exchange for the economy. Now, under the Chicago plan, you would remove this privilege of banks to create money. And then the, 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 the investment trusts that I had there, they could, still, they could actually do the intermediation business. There would be proper intermediaries. But now there would be no FDIC coverage uh, etc. And when you put your money in there, you know that this is a risky investment. Larry Kotlikoff, by the way, is arguing that you, uh, this should only take the form of equity investments in these, uh, in these uh, institutions, these credit institutions, which, you know, that has something going for it. I'm not, I'm not saying that in this paper. Um, but the investors will be cautious when they do that, much more cautious than they need to be today. So... The combination of removing the private control over money issuance and this additional investor caution would make, uh, uh, make it much harder to start a credit cycle. Here's a little simulation of the model where the black line is an impulse response, in this case over 44 quarters, um, a boom-bust credit cycle where initially banks are a lot more optimistic about the state of their borrowers, their riskiness, and then after three years, suddenly it all tanks. Right? There's a structural shock underlying this. And so basically what happens, the black line is the current monetary system. You can see that the, 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 the loan creation of the banking system can go skywards. In fact, it could, it could become vertical if, you know, in principle. Because 
What banks do is they just create matching entries on both sides of their balance sheet. Oh, the only thing that you need for that is a keyboard. You do not need real savings. Okay? And so therefore, <coughs> loans and deposits go up by very large amounts, and then when the crash comes, they just decline by e extreme amounts. And because uh, that has uh, eff effects on the real economy, you get a really large swing in GDP. Mm. Right? Uh, and under the Chicago plan world, um, you, would in a, you, you would be able to, to forestall that to a significant extent, and the fluctuations in GDP would be significantly uh, less. But I don't have time to go into all the technical details of this because this is a relatively short presentation. But there is one, before I conclude, there is one thing that we need to spend a little bit of time on. Whenever you raise something like this, uh, some people will scream bloody murder and say inflation, inflation, inflation. Okay? And, and so we need to um, dispense with, uh, we, we need to deal with that uh, criticism. And so I'm saying there will not be inflation for three reasons monetary theory, monetary history, and the institutional arrangements that I would actually propose for this. Um, theory inflation is determined by the relative, in any economic theory, by the relative supplies of money and goods. But it's money in private hands that matters because those are the people that do the spending. And the Chicago plan is not about changing the money that's in private hands. It's changing the nature of that money, which is something completely different. So here are, again, the balance sheet of the banking system highlighting a different, this different aspect now. This is the same as what we saw earlier, the three different stages. And in each case, I'm highlighting deposits. Throughout the whole process, I'm rounding a little bit. There are some very small changes, but it's not very much. It's 184% of GDP. Money in private hands doesn't change. Um, and, and so therefore, this cannot be, that cannot be inflationary. And when I presented this at the ECB, somebody very perceptive said, you know, the way you, to think about this is that the, you're switching the nature of money from this, which is uh, uh, destructible money, it's a, it's a very fragile money because it depends on the performance of your loan portfolio and not just that, also on the psychology of bankers as to whether they are going to continue to lend. lend. Very fragile money. And you're going to indestructible money. There's somebody from the ECB, not, not somebody very senior, but somebody very perceptive, said that to me when I, when I uh, presented this work there. Okay? <laughs> Um, so uh, uh, that's it about the theory of inflation. Um, history. I wrote something like 10 pages of history in this. I'm amateur at this. I'm not an economic historian, but I did a whole lot of reading, you know, at the time I could afford uh, to, to, to research this question. And a very long line of distinguished thinkers throughout history has advocated government money issuance under the rule of law. Some notable exceptions are Jeremy Bentham and, uh, uh, and Smith, Adam Smith. But Smith had a completely a messed up idea of, of the nature of money uh, that I can't go into here. Um, historical experience is very strongly in favor of it, I would argue. Namely, uh, periods of private money issuance, which in England started roughly uh, uh, from the Free Coinage Act in 1666. Uh, Bank of England was uh, about 30 years later. 
uh, was characterized by once, once every generation financial crisis. Uh, periods of government money issuance, not without crisis, but far less frequent. Um, now, of course, a lot of people are immediately going to say, hey, how can you say that? So government, government is not associated with crisis. Uh, look at all the crises that we've had over the last 100 years in developing countries, etc. That's a really serious logical error because we have not had anything in any of those countries that you could point at that is anything like the Chicago plan. In all of these countries, government has only ever been in charge of narrow money and banks have been in charge of broad money. Okay? But virtually, I mean, there may be some small examples, but virtually all the examples that you could point to. Which to me actually means that uh, financial crisis that, that over those last hundred years must have been, to a significant extent, also ha have been caused by banks. Because they have control over how much broad money they create and therefore how much inflation there is in the economy. Okay? Now, that's a question I haven't researched yet. So, uh, for but I think for developing economies, this would be a really interesting topic to research. Um, now, institutional arrangements. Um, you know, this system would still be run by people, and people are fallible, and so you want to set up something that uh, makes it less likely that that fallibility leads to some problems, right? So, uh, what we, under the current system, we have the independent central banker. What would you have under that system? Well, uh, I propose to, in the U.S. context, I would propose to turn money issuance over to a fourth power of government. <coughs> that would have a similar status to the Supreme Court in terms of constitutional independence. And what that would mean, it, it, would, it would insulate money issuance not just from government influence, but also from private sector influence. They need to, it needs to be independent of both. Uh, and so these guys would be, no, sorry, not guys, these people, would be tasked with uh, issuing money that is adequate for the real economy. Uh, so it would have to grow roughly by the rate of real growth, or maybe a little bit more if you think that the tiny bit of inflation is beneficial. There's legitimate debates about that. They would do the best job they can to supply the economy with adequate quantities of money. Uh, after the initial stock transaction, we're not talking about huge amounts. We're talking, as I said earlier in my example, of about 3.5% of GDP every quarter. You, know, a gov you can't run a government on that. But you can, you can help run a government on that. It's, a, it's, it's not a negligible number either. Okay. So, I am now ready to conclude. Um, and this is, you know, this is really a, a slide that, that connects to some of my other work. Um, and I'll get to that. So, so the, the, the Great Recession, in my view and in many other people's view, has shown that too much of a dynamic and innovative financial system can cause problems that distract attention from the real sector. And I find that, I think, going forward, we will need a very productive real sector more than ever. I'm personally very concerned about issues of resource shortages in the fossil fuels uh, field, shale, shale oil notwithstanding. Right? That's something I'm doing some other research on. Okay? And so we might need, you don't have to be with me on that. I think just generally you just have to feel that we need to encourage a very strong, productive economy. 
And what I'm arguing is that what we need in order to facilitate that is a really boring financial system. Okay? Really boring in the sense that these should be banks like they are in our textbooks. It's just that the textbooks are wrong. Mm. Uh, they, 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 need to, they need to be banks that uh, provide a completely safe, 100% crisis-proof payment system, which, as I've argued, would clearly be the case here. Um, and lending banks that really do act as conservative intermediaries of people's savings, savings in the form of sovereign money deposited with them. Okay? And I would argue that the Chicago plan has many elements of such a system, I sometimes talk to people at the IMF who do financial surveillance of countries and they have some sort of checklists of what, what, what would be desirable to achieve in terms of financial system safety. And uh, uh, you know, there's one of, them, one of them sympathizes with me a little bit on this work because, mm. because of the, he, he, he uh, studied under somebody who was advocating something similar. Um, and uh, he, we, we had coffee and he said, basically, if I go through that checklist and I look at what the Chicago plan would achieve, I would be able to make check marks behind an awful lot of those things that I would ideally like to achieve uh, in the financial system. Now, uh, without, without any doubt, going from here to there is not trivial. Right? In fact, anything but because we're talking about a, tra a transition that would be complicated. Right? We, we do have a very complex financial system, and to get from here to there is not trivial. But at the same time, I hope to have demonstrated to you that if I could get to the other side of this, we would be having so many advantages that not even considering this transition would be negligible. I mean, you know, this is a cost-benefit analysis. We have all these, these benefits that I'm arguing we would have on the other side is the fear of the, the, the uncertainties that come with the transition so great that we don't even want to consider it. That's all I want to put out there. And uh, that's, that's it. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you, Michael. Now, before we begin, um, some rules, if you like. You can, uh, you can either have a seat or you can take the questions at the lectern, up to Maybe you. it's easier to be at the lectern. Okay. Um, for those people who are asking questions, could I invite you to, because um, this event is being recorded, to just state your name and your affiliation very quickly, and then... Um, ask your question. So preferably not give a lecture, but ask your question, because we here are here to listen to Michael and hope we get the best value that we can out of the time that we've got here with him. So opening this up, perhaps, uh, Michael, if you like, you can take three questions or so at a time. Okay, but then you have to pronounce your names really clearly so that I can... Uh... <laughs> uh, my name is Fabio Pinay, I'm an economics PhD student here at the University. So I didn't read the full paper, and uh, uh, I still need time to understand fully. Uh, Let me interrupt you there. Yeah. Uh, by the way, there is an IMF working paper version of this that, that some of you may have, 
But on my personal website, there's a version that came out in April of this year uh, where I've already responded to a lot of questions that people typically ask when they see this. So that may, that may help. Okay. Okay. Go, go ahead. Yeah. Now, uh, so my, my understanding, my very poor understanding on how the Chicago plan would impact the, uh, the bank's balance sheet is that uh, so they will change the nature of the money in the economy from banknotes to coins. That's, that's the, the, the simple. From debt-based to equity-based. Exactly. Exactly. In that sense. In that sense. From debt-based to equity-based. But in my very little and basic uh, Keynesian macroeconomic model, this would translate into a, a reduction in the bank multiplier, the money multiplier of the model. Is, the, is this correct or no? There is no money multiplier. Okay, there is no money multiplier. Just get that. That's the first thing you need to understand. There is no money multiplier. The model okay. of the money multiplier is wrong. Okay. So my, my question is, uh, is your model, the result of your model, especially the uh, 10% gain uh, in GDP, uh, robust to uh, initial wealth distribution? Oh, that question is very good. So, uh, yeah, go ahead. I, I if you like, it's if easier you like, if I okay. take questions one that's at a time. Fine. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so, uh, uh, the model is obviously an aggregative macro model. It has a number of groups in it, but it is not a model of a continuum of agents or something like that. I have two household groups. One group that doesn't borrow at all and the other one that borrows. So I have a little bit of heterogeneity. But it is, it is not a model of very heterogeneous people where some people are very, very poor but have good prospects and therefore they need to borrow. Uh, and other people have had some good luck and they have some spare cash or something like that. That, of course, exists in the real world. And I, I, I need to, uh, to make sure that people understand when they see, when they see this, this, or let's, let's look at this, this final state, that they don't think that that means that there is no more private loans for consumption, smoothing, or to buy a house when, you know, when I'm very young or something. That would all still be there. It just doesn't appear in these aggregative balance sheets because it has to say there's a representative group of households, or maybe two, but not a continuum, not a great number of households. And, but the way that could be handled, that kind of borrowing and lending could be handled, is exactly like those credit investment trusts that I have here. Right? <clears throat> this would be granny walking into the investment trust or the mutual fund, whatever you want to call it, depositing some money there and some, some young guy who wants to buy a house borrowing it. Right? That, is, that is perfectly possible under the plan. So if that answers your question, then yeah. Um, also, I have to do the selecting. If yeah. you like. So yeah. I, I start with people towards the back because you, they have a disadvantage. Do you think that the current system doesn't have migrate? Oh. Sorry? No, go ahead. Okay. My name is Ivan Mosley. I'm a freelance writer. Um, uh, do you think the current system does migrate assets and wealth from, say, the independent poor to generalize the category to the rich systemically? Oh, that's a loaded question. <laughs> um, uh, I think there is a sense in which... Um, the, the bank's collection of seniorage uh, is, is, uh, might contribute to inequality. I'm not sure. I haven't done the research on it. 
But if you, if you look at the rate that banks can pay on their deposits because those deposits are money, and compare that to the rate that they would have to pay if it was not money, and then multiply that by the overall amount of deposits outstanding, you come to an amount of somewhere between, this is my guess, it's only a guess, 1% to 2% of GDP every year from the privilege from issuance of money. Okay, now the owners of banks, to the extent that they are rich, I know that might be a partial answer to your question, but it's not something that I have researched yet in any great, great detail. Um, so they, 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 there is also some research uh, by some people at NYU, Philippon, Reshef. They have looked at um, uh, the contribution of the financial sector to the growing income inequality in the U.S., and they came up with an affirmative answer, basically saying that those very, very high salaries and incomes in the financial sector cannot be justified on the basis of some sort of skill premium, so they must represent some sort of rent. Uh, and uh, that would explain some of the income inequality in recent years. Uh, I, so you have to read their papers. That wasn't my work. But that, that seems to also go in the direction that, that you are interested in. Um, person in the blue sweater back there. Uh, Jonathan Binder. I'm a PhD student here at LSE. I have a question uh, about the early part of your talk when you just described the distinction between loanable funds and the monetary model. So as I understand it, in a, a neoclassical model of banking, uh, if I'm Bill Gates and I'm, I have a great idea for Windows, I go to a bank um, and that bank will borrow a good from a depositor and, and lend me that good and I will turn that into... That is literally how you, how you have to tell the story of the models that are out there. Right. So in, in your contrast, I understand that if I'm Bill Gates, I go to, to, my, uh, to my bank and I say, uh, I want to borrow some money to create Windows, but, and the bank then creates a deposit account in my name. Yes. But in order to create Windows, I need to employ programmers, I need to buy computer systems, that requires real resources. Yes. And so how does this monetary creation redistribute real resources to, to Bill Gates in order to allow him to... To do this, the loanable fund theory says we give up some consumption or some other investment to give Bill Gates the money he needs to, the resources he needs to create Windows. But I don't understand how your expansion of bank balance sheets does the same thing because there's still a finite amount of real resources. Yeah. So the expansion of bank balance sheets uh, is a net zero transaction in terms of balance, uh, in terms of resources. Right. Uh, both sides grow, grow or decrease by, by the same amount. What you're doing is you're creating purchasing power over resources. You're not affecting the resources themselves, but you're redistributing or increasing the purchasing power over those resources. And uh, the way I did it in the model is that basically I modeled the demand for bank liabilities as a transaction cost technology, whereby if you have money, it saves on transaction costs. And so if the banking system creates more money, then it would save more on transactions costs. And you could also then look at cases where uh, the, money, the banking system creating money allows for the reallocation of some physical assets from people who are less productive at using them to other people who are more productive at using them. But that is only possible because the bank creates purchasing power out of thin air for the productive guy to then take to the unproductive guy and say, here's a bank deposit, give me your real asset. 
Okay, and, and it is still a net zero transaction. It does not directly represent a transfer of resources, but it allows a transfer of resources outside of banking to go ahead afterwards. It's about the creation of... Banks are not about transferring resources. It's about creating the purchasing power that allows the transfer of resources to go ahead. And in a model, you have to... You, in my view, you really have to distinguish the two. Um, you have been, yeah. Uh, my name is David, I'm the historian member of the public. Uh, my question is really about how this model fits in with markets. So, for example, what form would treasury credits take? I mean, if it was simply printed money, that would lead to too much inflationary. If it was treasury bonds, again, that would erode them too much. And it looks to me like the only thing you could really take the form of treasury credits would be a quantity like gold. And that could lead to governments picking winners, say, particularly with your independent regulatory system. It could lead to almost a situation like communist Russia faced, where although you have people um, who think they're intelligent enough to beat the markets, still the markets eventually win the end when they decide what the value of something is. Um, yeah, I have to say I'm a little, little confused about some of what you said earlier in your statement, because Treasury credit is just basically an IOU of the banking system to the government and it represents the matching entry, so to speak, in a bookkeeping sense, to the government printing up the reserves uh, that the banks need to back the existing money balances. There is uh, there is then nothing per se inflationary about that because you're not changing the amount of money in private hands. If, you, if, you, if your question was more broad and philosophical about, uh, you know, do I want to, to the government uh, to have this much power, etc., um, one thing, one, one very important and interesting factoid that you should know is that this was originally proposed by the arch laissez-faire economists of the Chicago School in the 1930s. They were completely laissez-faire economists as far as industry was concerned, real industry was concerned. But they were not laissez-faire as far as the financial system were concerned because they actually thought that the financial system could interfere with an efficient working of the real economy. Okay, so uh, you do not, I mean, even if you have this philosophical bent, you should be aware that the forefathers of this philosophical bent had a very different opinion on this question, and it's very much closer to mine. Um, you have been raising your hand for a long time. Uh, Pete Comley, uh, finance and economics author on debt and inflation. My question to you, Michael, is what's your theory on what happened in the 1950s? Because you clearly say that during that time, people's understanding of how money is created and how banks work changed. Mm, yes. And the textbooks seem to get rewritten with barter theory and uh, money multipliers. Yes. So what's your views on it's, what it's happened? Very, yeah, what happened? It's very interesting that you should ask that because on that question I have only done the research in the last three weeks because I'm right now writing a new paper that's called Banks Are Not Intermediaries. Okay? And uh, I, I looked at that question and essentially until... You know, Fisher was very active into the 40s. Schumpeter, uh, I, I have a book, Schumpeter's book, History of Economic Analysis. 
Um, and the edition that I have is from 1954. And, and there's some beautiful stuff in there where he recounts the, the history. And he is basically saying, well, uh, it was extraordinarily difficult for economists to convince their fellow economists that banks create money. It started with Vixel in 1906, and then others came along. And by no, around 1930, they had all the major economists had been convinced uh, and, and, and so then we, we, we were actually at a good point, and that continued until after World War II, uh, and, uh, and that then uh, came along, basically what happened, two things happened. One is banking almost went off the radar screen of the macroeconomics profession gradually, private banking rather than central banking. Um, so people paid less attention to it, and then... Uh, Gurley and Shaw came along in the mid-1950s, ac- academics, who wrote basically uh, an, an intermediation model of banking. So instead of dis- dis- distinguishing between money-creating banks and not money-creating <coughs> other financial institutions, they then made the distinction between direct debt and indirect intermediated debt, which is stunning to me in light of all the knowledge that surrounded them at the time, saying that this was not the important distinction. The important distinction was between money creation and not money creation. And there were some papers in the leading economics journals in the 1950s that we only recently discovered um, that basically excoriate Gurley and Shaw for not getting it. Okay, And then... Uh, I think starting in the 1960s, I mean, what predominated was just that banks were not front and center of macroeconomics anymore because Keynesian economics wasn't really mainly about that. Uh, and, uh, and, and so, and then uh, the neoclassical you know, revolution came along and, 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 and um, it seemed like people started over. They, they basic, and in terms of the understanding of banks, they went back to the late 19th century. <coughs> Um, I, I, that, that's as much as I know right now. Uh, hi, my name is Daniel. I'm a PhD student here at LSE. Can I ask you about those credit investments? I mean, in what way these things cannot just become like the new, like risky institutions? You say people there, you invest there, you know the risk, you become a shareholder of it. And you say, well, that, that's not a problem because people, people will be more cautious. But one of the lessons of this crisis is that, I mean, rationality is not enough. People can get in these cycles of positive moods somewhere. So when these things blow up because of a negative series of shocks, then, um, I mean, a democratic government would eventually have to step in and rescue those people with real resources, I guess. Um, I, I think not. Uh, I mean, it is possible, but, you know, Larry Kotlikov would say... And I agree with him on that, although I don't want to go as far as him, is that uh, you know, you, if those guys are uh, equity funded 100%, then you, know, you get what happens when the stock market tanks. You know, everybody takes a little bit of a haircut and live with it. Right? This is not going to crash the economy. It, you know, it could cause some hardship, but if the government doesn't step in to bail out people whose share price has collapsed. Right? Um, and uh, uh, so, so that's that is uh, one answer. And the other answer is, if you think about why governments want to step in, if you look into what happened during the 1930s and what people really complained about in the Great Depression, right? what they complained about is literally a shortage of medium of exchange. It's not about, oh, there aren't enough loans. 
It's about we don't have enough medium of exchange so that transactions go ahead. Literally, a lot of what was written at that time was about that. And that problem is completely removed under the Chicago plan because we are now, you, your question was really only about the credit part of the economy. The medium of exchange is safe. Right? So, you know, I, I'm not saying that this, it's never going to happen. It would never happen that a government wouldn't somehow want to bail those people out, but I think the rationale for doing it is very much weaker. There's very much less reason to do it. Um, you're there in the middle. Hi, I'm Jacob, a master's in economics student here at the LSE. Um, I know you brought up economic history. You seem to touch on it just briefly. I'm wondering, um, if in your studies, what examples are there in history where we had a system that was more akin to what you're talking about, and, and how stable were those systems? Right. So um, uh, England, before the Free Coinage Act, until 1666, in fact, there's a very famous legal case, the mixed monies case from 1601, which basically affirmed the right of the sovereign to issue worthless uh, metal uh, pieces as, as sovereign money. Uh, and, you know, I'm not saying that that period prior to 1666 didn't have any crisis, but they were far less frequent than what come after, came afterwards. Under Henry VIII, there was some problem, but it's, it's much less. The American colonies... Uh, had issued uh, monies on a state-by-state -state basis and Benjamin Franklin in his writing said that that was extremely economically beneficial at the time and that in fact the attempt by the crown to take that right away from the colonies was one of the major reasons for the outbreak of the War of Independence. Um, the uh, uh, civil war in the United States was to a very significant extent uh, financed by uh, greenbacks issued by Lincoln, uh, completely debt-free money of exactly the nature that is advocated here. And the war was financed uh, very successfully. <coughs> the only problem that can happen during such episodes is that your enemies can try to counterfeit your money. Uh, this is, for example, what happened during the War of Independence, where the British tried to counterfeit the money of the colonies when they were, trying to, when they were financing the War of Independence. But they actually succeeded in nevertheless financing the War of Independence and becoming independent. Right? So, so, the, the, so the United States actually has, has been a very rich laboratory uh, fairly recently compared to other countries where there were successful, uh, successful episodes. There were some sort of smaller scale, smaller, uh, scale experiments, uh, like, for example, in New Zealand prior to World War II, the uh, construction of social housing was financed uh, by, by a, basically a state-owned uh, uh, bank. There was something like that in Australia between in the early post-World War I period and also just after World War II for a little while. Um, Canada after World War II, uh, the central bank uh, issued a lot of the money, not nearly all of it, but a much more significant share uh, than what it is used today until the 1970s. Uh, when they stopped doing it, that's when their debt started to go up. Okay, so there, there is, uh, you don't find them all in one place typically, but you, when, you, when you do some reading, you will find, you will find uh, plenty of examples. Um, Andreas? Um, and then afterwards, I want you to tell me who has been raising his hand the whole time and I've ignored him the whole time. <laughs> uh, Andreas Vesman, I'm a banker. Uh, 
Can you tell, say something about the impact of the Chicago plan on the monetary transmission mechanism? But I guess I would be particularly interested in your views on how it affects how government expenditure can be funded. I mean, today it's taxation or debt. Mm -hmm. And presumably in this new world, it could be taxation, debt, and money because the 3.5% has got to be injected into the system somehow. Yeah. Is government expenditure the best way, one way, not a good way? Be interested in your Okay. Comment. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is really a question of, of fiscal policy, how you deal with the extra 3.5%. 3.5%, you know, sometimes people make extravagant claims about what this kind of monetary system could do on the fiscal side. I always say, look, be careful, this is not Christmas. Right? This is, uh, it's, it's significant, it's some extra money that you can use, but the real benefits come elsewhere in the reduction of the debt, uh, etc. Et um, and so you are right, the way this money could be used, it, it could be spent into circulation, directly spent into circulation. Um, so this would be issuing money not to the banks, like what, we ha- what is happening today in order to encourage the banks to lend, but directly Uh, for example, to finance bridges, highways, and ports, and stuff like that. It could also be lent into circulation, so that treasury credit that I had there, whereby the the treasury provides a credit line to banks who make productive lending decisions, uh, that could also also be lent into circulation that way. Um, And and then on a day-to-day fine-tuning basis, there could also be open market operations whereby it could be injected and withdrawn all the time. but at the end of the day, we're talking about 3 to 4%. In this particular example, I don't think in any real-world example it would be tremendously more than that. And so uh, it's, it's of some fiscal significance, for sure, but that's not going to solve all your fiscal problems. So who has been raising his or her hand the whole time and I ignored him or her? You? Okay. <laughs> Hi, I'm, I'm Sasha. I work in the financial markets, um, but I have more of a theoretical question. Um, if, we, if all the money in the economy is credit lent by banks, and banks charge interest on the loans, which is the money that they've created, then presumably part, part of that money supply must get delivered back to the banks as profit in the form of interest. And do we not end up with a situation where banks gather all the resources in the economy over time um, by virtue of their, their, their powers to create money? Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's a very complicated point because I'm, I'm not sure whether this is what you're getting at, but there are some people out there in the blockosphere who claim that essentially the monetary system that we have today, because correct me if this is not what you're getting at, who claim that the system creates um, enough money for the loan, initially to represent the loan, but it doesn't create enough money to service the interest. And that is why automatically debt has to go up all the time because I have to borrow more money into existence to service the interest. That's wrong. Okay? I sympathize with a lot of the stuff that's out there in the blogosphere, but that's just completely wrong. Because you must not confuse the token that is used to settle a debt, which is money, with the debt itself. Okay? The money just circulates the, throughout the economy all the time and can be used to settle many, many debts in a day. Well, not in a day, but in a week. Right? 
Um, so the quantity of money has nothing per se to do with uh, uh, debt having to go up automatically as a feature of the design of today's financial system. So we do observe that uh, in our financial system, debt goes up all the time, and there's, good, there's, uh, there's a good reason to think about why, but that is not the reason. Okay? Maybe it goes up because just we need, we need a greater and greater money supply. Uh, or something like that. Uh, I don't know. I've done other research on inequality where I'm typically just assuming that for some reason inequality goes up because the question of why it goes up is very multifaceted and um, it is not connected to per se to the financial system that we have today. So did that address your question? Was that what you were getting at? Okay, good. Can I ask a question? Yes. Um, I'm intrigued by your examples of 1601 England and Benjamin Franklin's observations on the U.S. colonies being able to issue their own currency. You're using that as a, as a way to reflect on the desirability of your Chicago plan proposals. Uh, I, I'm a little puzzled by that, so perhaps I could get you to clarify. Yeah. Uh, your Chicago plan proposals, the way they stand now, involve removing the right of private banks to add to the money supply. The right of sovereigns to add to the money supply, it seems to me, is an invariant. It exists today. It would exist also under your plan. So it seems to me that the right historical examples that we need to be, to be studying, perhaps the rest of us need to be studying more, is, is precisely the situation when it was only the sovereign that got to issue money, not anybody else. Not private, not the private sector. Is that correct? Is that a correct interpretation? Yeah, or, or at least get as close as possible to that as right, you can. Right, right. Yes. Because, uh, you know, and I think those historical studies would also help shed light on, you know, uh, people say, oh, economists, they, we worry about small things, but obviously you are an economist thinking about big things. You even want to create a fourth power of government. In, in, in monitoring the monetary situation. And I wonder if we have any historical evidence on whether when we create powers of government in that way, they are actually nimble enough and flexible enough to take advantage of emerging opportunities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It, it seems to me that those who are diehard continue to one laissez-faire in banking, you know, you know, against your against your proposal would be people who say, well, you know, the kind of Bill Gates example or Google or somebody else, it comes along and the fourth power government is going to deliberate over the next dozen years on whether to, to allow this or not. What we need are flexible banks who can actually go out there and grab the opportunity. And it seems to me that that's the kind of historical evidence that we want to, to weigh. Yeah, but... Uh, the you know, the, the credit investment trusts that exist in this model, they, they are not really constrained by anything, mm. not, not very constrained anyway, by the money that, the, the quantity of money that is created by the fourth power of government. Because uh, if they, they are to some extent constrained, but the free variable here is the velocity of circulation of that money which is entirely decided by the private sector. I see. So if they decide that you know, there's lots of opportunities out there, that's gonna, they're going to lend and relend it more times than they did before. I see. I see. I understand. Um, can I sneak in one last question? Yes. 
Do you think there's anything in the loanable funds theory of the monetary transmission mechanism that is still worthwhile? <laughs> if, in other words, if we didn't have the way that you describe this, you know, arbitrary creation of money from the way banks now operate, what you say is reality. But suppose that we try to restore some sanity in the system, where we actually did have granny coming in with gravel. If we were able to restore that. You know, in traditional academic introductory economics, we, we tell students about the advantages of that kind of a system. The money multiplier, you know, the, the flexible money supply, and we, we tell that as if it were a good thing. But so the question I have is, if we were able to restore Granny and her gravel mover, that would restore those advantages and it would be set against the disadvantages that um, you know, are not available, the, the absence of advantages that are not available to us because your Chicago plan has not been implemented. That, that seems to me a non-trivial trade-off. It's, it's totally trivial right now in your view of the world because in your view of the world, there is no granny. There is no gravel. It's just people coming in on the loan side. So if we were able to restore loanable funds, is there anything that's still worth rescuing? I, I, I think restoring loanable funds in the way it's literally in the models is physically impossible. Mm-hmm. Right? It's, that, that's not what banks do. They never have. It's mm-hmm. just an inaccurate representation of what banks do. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the only thing that anybody is ever going to come in, into a bank with is cash, right? Or cash or, I mean, if, uh, under the Chicago plan, you would come into the bank literally with cash, mm. right? Mm. And, 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 and that makes sense, and that would restore kind of that, mm. that, that intermediation view of the world, but in a way that is physically possible. Mm. The, mm. the gravel thing just doesn't work. I mean, I those banks would need to have warehouses for furniture, gravel, baby food, all of that, right? It just doesn't, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't work. But I think your question can also be interpreted a little more broadly, which is, could we uh, not just work with the existing system that we have, but make it uh, act more conservatively? Yeah, and, um, and there, you know, uh, something that Adair Turner has recently mm. been, been advocating, which is uh, window guidance or quantitative lending guidance, mm. where, uh, and this was very popular in continental Europe until a few decades ago, mm. uh, several post-war decades, and in East Asia also for, mm. uh, uh, was very popular, where basically the government would not just set an interest rate, but would also tell the banks you know, we expect you not to lend too much to this sector and, and more to that sector because it's a priority and, and mm. et cetera, et cetera. And Richard Werner from Southampton claims mm. that, uh, and apparently there are World Bank reports who confirm that, I haven't read them, uh, that that was actually not in every single case, but in many cases a successful policy. Um, I, I think... Uh, I. I <laughs> That may well be true, and I think it would be a better world than it might be a better world than what we have today. Mm. Um, but uh, it always leaves the door open. Mm. This sort of shuts the door. I see. I see. Just ask one more quick question. Could you speak on unilaterally? Yeah, that's a question that always comes up. That's also covered, for example, in my in my April uh, 2013 uh, version. So this is the international dimension. Right? What if a small country does this? Uh, would financial markets let it get away with that? 
Okay. Now, when I first got out of graduate school, I wrote, my, I wrote work on balance of payments crisis. Right? And the, the traditional models of balance of payments crisis, which would be sort of a speculative attack on the currency, which is kind of what you are getting at, I think. And when you have a speculative attack on a currency, the first generation of models will basically say, well, that happens because people can see that the government's fiscal policy is not sustainable. And so they want to get their hands on the reserves while they're still there before the government has spent them away. Okay? Now, if you think about that, about just the fundamentals, then you would conclude that this country should never be attacked because this country would be fiscally stronger than anybody else because of what I've just shown you, right? Fiscally, this country, the fundamentals would be rock solid compared to anybody else. However, uh, there are also not fundamentals-based speculative attacks on currencies uh, where, you know, the financial markets might just say, and the financial markets are huge relative to some small countries that might try to do this. They might just say, ooh, this is very unfamiliar. This is against the orthodoxy. We don't like it. We're going to attack this currency. We're going to make a stock market crash. We're going to withdraw money from there, etc., etc. This is true. This is a problem. This is, this is, this is a possibility. Uh, and uh, that's why uh, this would be much more promising if this was implemented in large countries first. Something like the Eurozone or the United States or something like that. A small country, if it really wanted to do this, um, and again, this is, this is just speculation. Again, it has nothing to do with IMF policies, although the IMF has recently been quite open-minded about uh, capital controls being something that can be justifiable under very specific circumstances. If you're a small country and you insist on doing this on your own, I think it might be necessary to at least temporary, temporarily during a transition phase to impose capital controls. But all of that is now very, very speculative and I'd rather not go there. Hmm. Uh, is there anybody, because you already asked the question earlier, you have not, so... Thank you. My name is Paul Gainford. I wondered um, what your thoughts were on how you could persuade a major government to implement some or all of this plan. How would you get George Osborne to say, let's do it? Yeah. Little me. Uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, what I'm trying to do right now is just to encourage understanding that this is a possibility and that a lot of what we are, a lot of the debate right now that's going on about high government debt and government insolvency, etc., is to some extent a mental straitjacket. And that once we look at this big picture uh, that I've presented to you here today, there are, there are other options. And all I can do is to get the word out. Um, I, um, don't, don't let me speculate of what it would take to make this happen. Because I think what it might take to make this happen might not be... Uh, let me not go there. Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah? Andrew Keckwick, taxpayer. Um, <coughs> are, there, are there any intermediate appropriate steps that can be made, developing on the last questions, in the right direction, such as increasing the level of reserves? Yeah, this is what Adair Turner is advocating. Um, and um, that, may be, that may be a possibility. I prefer uh, to go the whole, ho the whole hog um, because, uh, if, I mean, in an ideal world, I'm, I guess I'm being a little academic here, but sometimes that has advantages. 
in an ideal world, if you do this, um, it would be difficult to open the door back up after it's closed. You know, once you have really made this transition. Whereas if you have higher reserve requirements, let's say you put them to 30% or something like that, this is going to be whittled away again over time. Right? And we end up with a system that is precisely our problem. Plus, even if you have a 30% reserve requirement, you know, think about it, 30% reserve requirement, and let's say the government still does inflation targeting. What does that mean? Well, it still means that the banks lend whenever they want to, and the, the government is then, in that case, just going to issue more reserves to make sure that the banks mm-hmm. don't suffer a liquidity crisis. Right? Mm-hmm. So it's actually not solving the problem at all. Can we have one more question? Hi, my name is John, and I'm studying here a master in Tennessee. And uh, yeah, I see, well, the main problem is money is, can grow exponentially, but it's not linked to any natural resource. It can own a natural resource, but it's not linked to anything. So maybe create a world bank where the assets are natural resources or resources that can create energy, and we have a balance sheet that it's that on one side, and then you create solid-based money in that uh, to make people act on the economy as they wish. A money which even the loans are only directed with no interest, just based on the purpose of the loan. If you're going to create something good, you're not going to create missiles, but uh, you know a business that is going to benefit uh, humanity or something like that. You know you get the loan, and you don't have to pay interest back. The solid money. How would that work? Uh, I'm very much against that. Um, and so the reason is that any, you know, the whole notion that money has to be backed mm. by something goes back to the gold standard. And that was a disaster. Right? In, the, in the final reckoning, that is a disaster. If you go for a strict gold standard, uh, like under the Van Buren presidency in the 1830s in the United States, you shoot yourself in both feet. Right? Uh, and and, and uh, linking to gold, for example, was very problematic because gold itself is not a very stable, uh, does not have a very stable price itself. If you're linking to commodities, you could get the same thing. Why not just have a money supply where people intelligently look at the overall economic picture, real GDP, what is the prospect for that, how much money do I need to support that, and then I issue that money. If I then have revenue from creating this money and I decide, oh, I want to spend it on green technologies and all that, fine. But why link money to green technologies I don't, or, or something like that? I, I think that's, uh, that's, to me, that's going, people have been trying to convince me otherwise, but I'm, I have not been convinced so far. Maybe I'm missing something. Mm. So. Okay, um, we've reached... Eight o'clock, unfortunately, where I'm going to have to call this to a close. I know that some other people still have questions that perhaps we'll have a few seconds. Michael might be able to, um, if you buttonhole him quickly after the talk. But to bring events to a close, can I first of all just thank everyone here for your attention and your interest and your questions that has really helped uh, guide our conversation this evening. And of course, I need to thank our speaker, Michael Kumov, uh, for really a most interesting and, in, in many ways, an exciting evening about going forwards with you know, large-scale economic proposals. If I could just get you, the audience, to show our appreciation to Michael. Thank you.